0: This podcast is sponsored by Hot Click Marketing. You can follow on Twitter uh, at hot underscore click or you can find them just by searching Hot Click Marketing. Thanks very much for their support that we can bring you this podcast. Now, I'm very privileged tonight on the podcast to have a special guest, so I hope you enjoy this. Tell us how you feel. Give us five stars on the uh, Forever Blue uh, podcast links. Obviously, you can get us on iTunes and Spotify and all the rest of it, as well as SoundCloud, where this is all based. But tell us what you think, and if you enjoy this type of an interview, one-to-one. I did one with Glimpardo a couple of weeks ago, and I did one... Uh, a couple of uh, months ago, I think it was now, with Andy Morrison. And there's one coming up with a fan called Sean Riley that you'll, you'll want to listen to as well in the near future. Uh, but with me tonight is Dr Gary James. Now, it doesn't get much better than having the historian, uh, the, the man who, who knows City's proper history backwards, sat with me. And I, I've been lucky enough to sit in several of... of uh, Gary's talks, most recently on the anniversary, 125 years of City, and anybody that hasn't gone along and seen these, frankly, is a fool because you've missed an absolute treat. Uh, Gary, thanks very much for, for joining us. Thanks for um, You, in that talk, and when you've, you've had feedback from that talk, have said that was a one-off, you were never going to do it again, which I think is sad, really, because I, I wish the place had been crammed out and more people had heard it. So, in a way, this is an opportunity to at least share some of what you were saying that night with people who couldn't be there and weren't there. But you told the story of... as much as you could in in two hours of city's 125 year history but the bit that really fascinated me what not that not any of it didn't but was the beginning bit and the stories of Hyde Road and the the train that went through the ground and and, and other things like that so I'm going to ask you really to sort of you don't mind to sort of reproduce a little bit of what you said that night can you do that yeah uh, okay where
1: do you want me to start do you want me to start the beginning
0: why not <laughs>
1: right once upon a no back in um people often talk about city's first game in 1880s saint mark's church november 1888 1880 um i'm convinced that's not their first game there's a number of reasons for that one is because your first game would typically be against a near neighbor would typically be it was a church would typically be Really against a church maybe of the same religion um, St Mark's was the Church of England church the team that played was the Baptist Church from Macclesfield so the Baptist Church had to travel to, Man- to Gorton um, to play this game uh, obviously Baptists Church of England different religions um, and it was in at least three different newspapers four newspapers the, a match report of some description so I think your very first game would be a kickabout with uh, one of your near neighbours. And there were, te- there were lots of teams playing football, people say there wasn't, but there were lots of teams playing association football in East Manchester in 1880. So I think this may have been the second game or the third game or the fourth game. It could have been the 28th game, but I don't think it's first. So when people say 1880, the club was formed, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was 1879, maybe it was 1878, we don't know. Um, United claim their formation was 1878, but there's absolutely no evidence that they played a football match until one week after St. Mark's in November 1880. So you've got St. Mark's on, I'm going to catch myself out here, but it was the 12th of November, I think it was. Uh, it's certainly about 12th or 13th. Um, so you've got St. Mark's playing football that day, and then seven days later, Newton Heath played Bolton Reserves which is more typical of a sort of first game because it's a reserve team of Bolton Wanderers who were already a a bigger side. Um, So at City, maybe we were playing in the 1870s, maybe we were playing in the 1860s, who knows? But certainly that St Mark's game is not necessarily our first. What we do know is it's the first reported game and so we have to go off that. It's the first reported game.
0: It's interesting that you're, you're picking that out when the the club obviously celebrated on the day you did that talk at the Dance House Theatre, uh, exactly 125 years, and you said something in that which caught me out, I must admit, because you, uh, you know, I, I've had a debate with a friend of mine as to when City really started, and you see City fans wearing the St Mark's shirt, but you, asked, you, you, you said in that talk that actually City's first day, their, their creation, was actually the day they became Manchester City. Yes. And now the reason why people have this big debate is because obviously there is a timeline that follows through from St Mark's into Manchester City. Can you explain yeah. then what, what so, the reason is ultimately for going for that mark when City yeah. started?
1: Because in April 1894, Manchester City was created. It was a club that was created, a new club. A new club for Manchester is what they called it. So it wasn't
0: just a pure continuation. Absolutely not, because
1: Ardwick Football Club, which which St Mark's evolved into if you like, Ardwick Football Club played on after Manchester City was established. Uh-huh. They had about two or three games, I can't remember I'd have to look at the presentation again. But but they had a couple of games after Manchester City was established. And at the um, Lancashire FA Meeting that was held that that week, that Manchester City was officially formed. If you like, Hardwick complained about Manchester City because Manchester City was claiming they would be using the Hyde Road ground that was Hardwick's Hyde Road ground. So Hardwick and Manchester City, for a very brief period, were coexisted and were rivals. However, by the time Manchester City played their very first game and were accepted into a football league and all that. Ardwick had ceased to exist, and virtually all, but definitely not everyone, uh, from Ardwick joined forces and became part of Manchester City. So the history is really important. Manchester City was established in 1894. that's that's, cannot be disputed. We have the date, we have the evidence, we have the documentation, we have all the proof. Um, But you also can't ignore those years before, because without St. Mark's, Gorton, West Gorton, Gorton, Bellevue Rangers, which is another important club which um, doesn't get the attention that it should do, but it is important to the story. And Hardwick. Without those clubs along the way, Manchester City would never have been established. So they are important. The the key thing, cause it's a City podcast, this, and so it's really important to try not to talk about Manchester United. But because I write about City and United and other teams, it's really important to explain this. Manchester United claimed their formations in 1878 as Newton Eve. When they were reformed in 1902, it was exactly the same as Ardwick becoming Manchester City. There wasn't as much as many protests. A lot of the Newton Eve people immediately switched to Manchester United. But Manchester United was a new club, and it had to be a new club because of the debts and because of other things that, that, were, that were around it. The only real difference was that Ardwick had finished in the re-election zone in the Football League, whereas Newton Heath didn't. So, Adwick had to stand for re-election and would have been kicked out of the league because there was no hope for the club, it was, it was dying. Um, so, Manchester City put itself across as a completely new club with no connection to Hardwick when it was launched, completely new club, and it did so to make sure it got a place in the league. Whereas Newton Heath, to guarantee their place Wherever it was mid-table in the second division. Um, Newton Eve when it became Manchester United, put it across that it was the same football club to make sure he kept that place in the league. This is this
0: is really interesting because there's a couple of clubs I could draw examples of that you you can now use as maybe examples. Charlton Athletic went bust and were reformed i think it was 1984 but that that, i might have got the date wrong but there was clearly a continuity between the old Charlton Athletic and the new Charlton Athletic even though financially one had collapsed and the other continued so you can see how that would continue you look at Wimbledon's record and MK Dons because obviously the original Wimbledon moved to MK Dons at first they took the history of Wimbledon with them But since then, a new Wimbledon's been formed who now claim the
1: history of the old Wimbledon. So there's some real complex webs out here, aren't there? And and I think the point is, if you've got a league place, you put it across, it's the same club. Even though it's not, it's a different limited company. If you've not got a league place, or if you're going to be kicked out of the league, you have to say it's a new club, because otherwise you don't stand a chance. And when Joshua Parvey stood up in May... Um, 1894, the same day that Queen Victoria opened the, the Manchester Ship Canal, he stood up at the Football League AGM, which was held in Manchester at um, a pub called the Old Boar, which is roughly where the Printworks is today. And he stood up there and he made this really passionate speech about how Manchester needed a football league club. And Manchester, this growing city, this massive city, the third city of the Empire, and all this sort of stuff. He, he said loads of stuff. We don't have his exact words, but we've got sort of summaries of, of what he said. Um, when he stood up and did that, he completely dismissed Newton Heath as a, as a Manchester club. It's Newt and Heath, it's a district of Manchester, it's not a Manchester club, um, and he completely dismissed Ardwick. He talked about this new club. The fact that this new club didn't have any players, didn't have a ground, hardly had any shareholders and, and so on, was irrelevant. He managed to persuade everybody um, that Manchester City Manchester deserved a football club and that Manchester City was that club, a new club for Manchester. Um and Palby was a fantastic figure. He, he you know, we hardly any city fans seem to sort of know his name and the club never celebrates him. But Joshua Powlby, Lawrence Furness, Walter Chu, these people formed what became Manchester City, um and, and what we know of as our club. Um and we don't really talk about them. And we should do, because without them, there'd be no Aguero.
0: Interestingly as well, there was a fight over the use of the word Manchester, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, City were clever. So in 1894, City claimed Manchester. Now, there was already a Manchester Football Club, which is the rugby club. It still exists. Nowadays, they call themselves Manchester Rugby Club. But Manchester Football Club was a rugby team that started in eight eighteen sixty three, I think it was. Certainly so eighteen no, eighteen sixty two, something like that. Anyway, um, Manchester Football Club was prominent in, in rugby union as it became. But in the eighteen nineties the debate about professionalism was, was going on. And Newton Eve in eighteen ninety four saw this Manchester City being established and wanted to change their name to Manchester Football Club. And they were they announced they were going to do it and the rugby football union and the Football Association met and it's ministered in the Rugby Union uh, minutes and they blocked Newton Heath from accepting that name Manchester because Manchester Football Club was a rugby team and so Newton Heath was stopped which meant that there was only one major soccer, club, soccer team with the name Manchester. There had been other clubs, there had been a Manchester Association, there had been West Manchester, there had been Manchester Wanderers, uh, Manchester Arcadians, which played not too far from here actually, um, and there were lots of others, but Manchester City were the only Manchester club in the Football League, and it was really important. It was you know down to Joshua Palby. And Palby, Palby had been a footballer with Stoke, and he'd been a committee man at Stoke, he'd been on the Football League committee, so he's well known. He was a big, booming sort of character. Um, he was nicknamed Falstaff from after sort of Shakespeare and uh, and so on. Um, but for me, best person I suppose is similar, is the actor Brian Blessed. If you imagine, Brian Blessed, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's what Palby was like. And if he stood up in a meeting and told you that Manchester deserved a football team and outside, on the streets, the city's decorated, Queen Victoria's around, the ship canal's opening, and Manchester is perceived as this fantastic, growing, modern city, then you're gonna believe it, and you're gonna back him, and you're gonna, you know, stand up and applaud, and, and that's what happened.
0: The ground was Hyde Road, of course, which uh, later we can perhaps talk about Main Road in a few minutes. But Hyde Road um, was, had quite a large capacity and had a, a boy stand. Uh, I know that was quite significant. But also, bizarrely, because it was it was close, and it still is, the site is right close to the railway line, isn't it, when you come out of Piccadilly Station. And, and actually had... A, a, well, you, you told a great story and you yeah. talk about a train actually going through the ground on match day.
1: Yeah, I mean, what it did was the ground had uh, obviously four sides to it, but it had a corner where the boys' stand was. And the boys' stand m- gave City its identity in, in many ways. Um, the boys' stand was a raucous sort of place where anything goes, free of adults, free of anything, and, you know, we, you can talk about football chants and so on. The boys' stand did it all and everybody of the right age, wanted to be in the boy stand. Obviously, it wasn't just boys, but it was known as a boy stand. Um, and in front of the boy stand, because of it's, it, its position, um, there was a, a loop railway line that came out of Galloway's Boiler Works, went in front of the boys' stand, so in between the boy stand and the corner flag, and then looped round and back out the stadium and, and off to uh, the main railway line. And Galloway's needed this because they made boilers, and they had to transport these boilers. Now, we're not talking about the sort of boiler you've got in your house, we're talking about big industrial boilers, more like the sort that you'd see on the Titanic, right? Um, and so, typically, at half time a game, this was because Galloway's was still working Saturday afternoons, typically Galloway's would then use that opportunity to, to get some of the boilers out. And this, I interviewed this guy years ago, one of the first interviews I did, and he, and he was quite old at the time, and he told this fantastic story about, around about 1920, he was stood in the boy stand when the boiler, one of these boilers, was being transported out of the out of Galloways, started going through in front of the boy stand, and for some reason got stuck and blocked the view. And the players came out for the second half and the boy stand erupted. Whistles, throwing stuff, all sorts of things happening. Eventually we managed to get it going again. Um, but it sort of showed a sort typical city spirit in some ways that. Where else would you, your block, be, view, your block be, be stopped, if you like, your view would be stopped by this boiler coming out of the factory? It's just bizarre. And, you know, I've got a photograph, it took me years to find this photograph, but I've got a photograph of a couple of city players holding a flag and, and so on, but, but basically stood next to this loop line um, because it was, a, it was part of Hyde Road, uh, you know, it was part of Everyday Match. Um, you know, there's odd things about Main Road that people will talk about and people will remember, you know, Treatments for Steel and all these other bits and pieces. Um, but Hyde Road, it was the boy stand and the railway line, and that was typical city. Main Road was built in 1923, and it was
0: built uh, and often described as the Wembley of the North. And what I loved about your talk uh, was that you you perfectly explained because there's so much criticism by fans of other clubs that the City have no history that actually if you look into City's history they were such a huge club that they had to have the Wembley of the North built for them because they were the people's club
1: weren't they? Well it, yeah I mean this really it really As you can tell, it irritates me when uh, you get fans of other clubs talking about history. Every single club's got history. You know, Berry won the FA Cup twice before either City and I got to a final. So, you know, if you talk about trophy success, get that out of the the way. You know, we've all got history. But for years, from 1899, I think it was, right the way through until 1923, City were desperate to move. They were blocked by Chester's Brewery and um, Chester's owned a number of shares in Manchester City and there was quite a few stormy shareholder meetings where share, uh, where Chester's were basically saying you're not moving because they owned the rights to the ground, uh, was to selling beer at the ground, they owned all sorts of things connected with the club and so they blocked that move. So I'd Road held around about 40,000 but it had so few entrances because of the railway lines and because of everything else, it had so few entr- en- entrances that the police would quite often insist that the gates were closed with thousands locked outside because they felt it was either unsafe in the stadium or there wouldn't be enough time to get everybody in so they'd close the gates. And so the attendance would quite often be 30,000 when it held forte. And people got so frustrated about this and and it it went on for years and years and years. Um, And so it, it ended up
0: Just, just ignore that. There's uh, um, Paul who's watching the podcast being run. has just let his phone ring. So <laughs> carry on. Don't, don't, don't just ignore Sorry. that.
1: So it ended up that for years, the City were trying to move. From the 1890s, they were trying to move. It kept being blocked by Chester's. And then around about 1913, they appointed a famous architect called Archibald Leach. He was the guy who designed a number of major grounds: Goodison Park, Old Trafford, and various sort of grounds, uh, Ibrox, the new standard Ibrox, and obviously. The then new standard, Ibrox, uh, and and so many things. So they appointed the, this guy who was the best, and they said to him, "We want to build a one hundred and twenty thousand capacity stadium," and he said, "Right, okay." And they gave him an office at the ground, um, and the site was going to be what became the Bellevue Dog Track, the ground track. Uh, That was going to be the the site, um, which was vacant then. And so for years, people knew the city were going to go to Bellevue. There was talk about them also going to what became the Speedway Stadium, but but this site offered them the potential to build a 120,000 capacity stadium. Chester's Brewery kept blocking it and blocking it. So he then devised plans to turn Hyde Road round, because behind one of the, Beyond the main stand, basically, there was more land, so he felt that if he turned the pitch round, he'd be able to fill the stadium and build an eighty thousand capacity stadium at Hyde Road. Personally, I don't think that could ever have really happened, but that was his plan. Um, and then the World World War One started, and the plan was shelved. And then after the war, city struggled on. Then there was the fire, but all the time they're looking for ground and looking for ground. And then they absolutely shocked everybody when they announced they were going to move to this site at Main Road. And the key thing was, Main Road was planned to be built in two stages. The first stage would build an 80,000 capacity stadium, and the second stage would take it to 120. That was still the plan. And so they moved to Main Road. It was built by the same people who were were building Wembley Stadium, but Wembley got criticised. And in May 1923, they actually felt that there would never be a cup final at Wembley again because of all the yeah, problems that had occurred at the first FA Cup final. City had based their plans on Hampden Park, which they felt was the best stadium in the, in the world at that point. Um, and so this huge main stand and then the huge terrace around it, so, so that was their plan. They built Main Road, film of the first game claims was 80, there was 80,000 there. Officially it's about fifty eight thousand. Um we'll never know for certain. But it probably to me, when you watch the film, it probably looks to be about seventy sixty eight, seventy thousand. I don't I don't think it's fifty eight, I think it's more than that, but officially it was fifty eight thousand. Maybe Peter Swales was there, I don't know, but you know. Um <laughs> But ten no nineteen twenty three main road opened, nineteen thirty one City expanded Main Road, and people forget this. I, I wrote about it in Farewell to Main Road, but people forget this. They extended the corner next to Main Road, the Main Stand and Platt Lane. And if you think back, right up until the end of the original Platte Lane Stand, that corner was higher than the rest of the Platt Lane Stand. And what had happened was they'd knocked down the corner that used to be there and they raised it up and they'd put seats in and they expanded it with... Um, a bit of concrete and, and so on they expanded it but then so, so they increased the capacity a little bit in 1931 which is why we got the 84,000 crowd in 1934 and then in 35 they expanded the rest of Platte Lane um, using wood at the back which at the time seems sensible but years later isn't and the plan was I've seen as, as years ago I went to the council and looked at plans the plan was around about 1938 we were supposed to be doing the same to the corner at what became the north stand and then a couple of years after that they're going to do the same to the rest of the north stand to make it like Platte lane and then they're going to increase the size of of what became the kipax and what happened in 1939 war broke out so those plans were put on hold and and it's one of those things that had that war not happened it's highly possible because of the huge crowd city we're getting that main road would have been increased maybe not to. Hundred and twenty thousand, but maybe to ninety five, maybe to hundred. Who knows? Um, and that would have set City off forever, really. But you know, unfortunately, fate's fate, isn't it? And, and things happen.
0: Well, you've obviously perfectly illustrated the size of the club in it early in its history, etc. Um, and we know a lot of what's happened since then. There's been ups and downs and all sorts of other things. Does it bother you as a historian? You've sort of said it does a little bit, that that fans of other clubs look at City in the way that they do, because the other thing, of course, was that City were the first winners, apart from Bury and Blackburn locally, and certainly the first of the so-called big clubs now to win the FA Cup, and I actually went a couple of weeks after you told me that, in fact it might have even been that weekend down to the site of the Crystal Palace Stadium that was the venue for the FA Cup against Bolton Wanderers, which is now the National Athletic Stadium, and included that in a vlog that I did because I didn't know that and I certainly didn't know where it was. and never gone to the trouble to do that. Um, But to suggest that City, and obviously it's a bugbear of all City fans, that they have no history is just
1: ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean the, the, the original FA Cup that City won, it's not the original FA Cup but it's the original design but it is the actual trophy that City won in 1904, is in the National Football Museum, that's the one that Billy Meredith picked up and that's the one that um, we should all go and see at some point um, but, but City winning the FA Cup in 1904 we were accused of being a new club, a nouveau riche club was one of the phrases, a club that was, you know, had bought success, all of those things. So, you know, this is 1904, we accused accused of that, all of that. So what does bug me is 115 years later, we're still being called this new nouveau riche club that has bought success. Well, we achieved success before Manchester United. We achieved success, what was it, 26 years before Arsenal, 50 years before Chelsea and, you know, we could go on, couldn't we? Um, but yet we're the ones that are the new kids on the block. Our history is more in keeping with the history of football clubs, major football clubs, than probably anybody else. You know, Liverpool didn't really register for much of the period after about 1905 through to 1960. Manchester United had a brief period around about 1908 to 1911 with former City players, don't get me started on that one, um, which gave them success, but then nothing until 1948. Nothing. And then it was one of our former players that, that brought them their first successes. And like I say, I still didn't achieve anything until, and this is from a local perspective, this is really significant, Glossop had a a wealthy backer called Samuel Hillwood, local mill owner, very important to Glossop. If you go to Glossop, there's streets named after him, there's all sorts of things named after him, the cricket club's got tributes to him and so on. Um, And Samuel Hillwood invested in the football team and bought success. Um, They became the smallest town to have a league team and they, it, well, to have a, a team that got promoted to first division. And they got promoted in 1899 with City after spending loads of money on players and, and started paying illegal payments, just like City were alleged to do. Um, and they got promoted. And then he moved to London and bought shares in Arsenal. And Glossop went down and Arsenal became the team. You know, it's, uh, every team that has ever, well, or probably. um no, I won't say every team. Almost every team that has major t- success has at some time had a wealthy backer who's thrown money at that club, and transformed its fortunes. Um, Liverpool was established because a bloke had a football ground and he wanted to make some money out of it. Because Everton had moved out, so he had this ground, so he created a football team so that he could make some money. That's you know, that's that was the bottom line of it. Um. I've said about Arsenal. Uddersfield Town, nineteen twenties. Uddersfield Town won the league three times in a in a row because they had a wealthy backer who owned who owned mills in in the area, in West Yorkshire, and he eventually chose to leave Uddersfield Town. He brought in the best manager, bought the best players. He chose to leave Uddersfield Town and invested in another football club that that was fairly new called Leeds United, and Leeds United grew, and Uddersfield Town stagnated. And it's, you know, you could talk about more recent times, Jack Walker at Blackburn and and so on, you know. So every club's had this transformational income at some point. And people say, ah, well, it's not the same as City because City is is billions, you know, or whatever. Well, go back to Glossop and the money that Glossop got. It it may not have been millions or whatever, but it's all relative. If you invest in a football club, transform that football club, they find some success then the rivals have to match that or better it. And so when they match it and better it, then it's a, it's a circle It goes round and round until eventually you get to a stage where somebody might be spending a trillion on a football team, you know, that's, unfortunately, that's football.
0: Before I ask you about what you're doing now and what, what you you know, you, you've written a lot of fantastic books, which are really any City fans reference books. I want to just explore one other subject with you, even though we could probably sit here for three hours and, and talk about lots of other things, trust me, and maybe we'll get you back and do yeah. another one. But I want to ask you about the the shirts and and the colours, um, obviously I've been I've lived my whole life in an era where City wear a sky blue shirt and to me, that is City's colours. Um, what has been the history of first of all the first team home kit, which is what we're talking about, and kits generally? Give us give us a little flavour
1: of that. For most seasons, we've worn a, a shade of sky blue and white shorts. Um, there have been seasons where we've worn a darker blue. Typically late 70s, um, and then obviously there was the laser blue. Did um,
0: Manchester City, sorry to take you back, on that day, 125 years ago, when they played their first home game at Hyde Road, was that wearing a sky blue shirt? Yeah, blue
1: and white, you know, they go together. Yeah, and um, Hardwick wore blue and white. There's a load of rubbish out there about the Masons. Um, Paying off Hardwick's debt so Manchester City could be formed, and so that Manchester and then to, telling Manchester City you have to wear sky blue and white, our the Masons' colours, right? I've searched. I've been I've been involved with archivists and and so on, connected with Masons. I've been through Masonic archives, and every time somebody says I've got proof of that, they regurgitate an article that appeared in two thousand and two, which is just Sydney Rose's view. It's it's not based on evidence, right? Um, and that usually says, before they became Manchester City, they wore red and black, and the Cheshire was absolutely rubbish. Ardwick were wearing blue and white from 1887. The difference was, Ardwick initially wore royal blue and white stripes, then they went to a sort of sky blue and white, they call them quarters, but sort of half, half and half, um, and then it was city blue and white. There are seasons where there's a suggestion city wore white shirts, But basically from the beginning, it's Cambridge blue is what we call it originally, which isn't quite like the Cambridge blue that Cambridge themselves, the the university, wear. it's basically a very, very light sky blue. And then over the years, we started to change. We call it pale blue. There There are articles in the 50s and I think even the 30s which call it sky blue. And people often say, oh, we never wore sky blue. Well, it's reported as sky blue in some pap- in some papers and articles and so on. And um, but it's always been a light blue. I'd say the blue you're wearing is the closest to our traditional blue. And I know that when Umbro did the research for that, they actually spoke to me um, quite a bit actually, and they tried to match it. And the, the colour they were going for was the sort of Colin Bell blue, if you like. And I think that's that's the closest. You know, um, we quite often go to darker blue, and you know in the late 70s it was dark blue shorts and at the time I didn't think there's anything wrong with that um, and then I remember Billy Mcneil when he was manager he brought back a very pale blue it was, it was shiny it was a glossy sort of blue and white shorts and he said these Billy Mcneil said these are the colors that he believes are Manchester City's colors you know being a great figure in Celtic's history he obviously looked at the English game and he saw the Manchester City of Bellevue somebody, and he thought that's the colour and so once Billy McNeil said that at that time in the 80s I thought it's got to be right and I loved Billy McNeil at the time um, and he said we'll never go back to blue shorts well of course we have and we've won trophies in blue shorts and we've done other stuff you know but but for me the shade of blue has to be that shade really that's that city blue that's why it's my favourite shirt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got that shirt I haven't bought the recent ones hmm yeah. Um,
0: away shirts, I suppose, oh, are now, different. Yeah. I mean, Red and Black is the one that was associated with Bernard Holford, a long-time secretary, sadly passed away. And I, I've always understood that to have been brought in by Malcolm Allison yeah. as a tribute to AC Milan. Yeah. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that- and he wanted, the th- he wanted that to be our home kit. Really? Red- yeah. There was a big argument between him and Joe Mercer about it. He wanted Red and Black to be City's home kit. And, you know, now we'd probably go absolutely ridiculous and we'd, we'd all protest and we would demonstrating that. But I think he could, he could have pulled it off if he, if he tried, because it was Mark Wellison. Mm. You know, Leeds changed their colours around the same sort of time. Liverpool started wearing, wearing red shorts. People were against that. Um, so, who knows? But our traditional away colour is maroon. We've probably worn maroon, well, we have worn maroon more than any other colour, apart from blue and white. You know, and, and for me... It's not purple. People talk about purple, it's not purple. I remember in the 90s when we, when we produced that purple kit, which is great kit. And I think it was Francis Lee tried to say, oh, it's a replica of the 1956 shirt. It's not, it's purple. Maroon is the color. Uh, Maroon is sitter. And we used to have maroon numbers at times and we had maroon trims and we had maroon on our socks and you know, and, and maroon actually goes and maroon, funnily enough, is one of the colors that, the United, well, that Abu Dhabi um, uses as their, for their branding and so on. So I'm not entirely certain why we go to a sort of cherry colour or a purple, maroon should be the colour.
0: You were a consultant on the brilliant Bert Troutman film mm. uh, and they wore that maroon kit in that cup final, didn't they? I mean, I know Bert didn't because he's a goalkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that was the colour that we you're talking about really, wasn't yeah, it?
1: Yeah, but it, it, even, even before that, the 1934 final, a really beautiful maroon shirt... Um, I, I was lucky enough to, to, for a while when I was running City Museum, we borrowed Ernie toseland's shirt, and it was fantastic. You know, the, the socks and everything. Um, the trauma film, yeah, I was a consultant on that. There's a lot of things that are not correct in the trauma film. Um, as a historian, I told them everything that was truthful, and obviously for the purpose of film, a bit like the um, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen film, you have to play with it a little bit to make it a good story. Um, I think there's certain things that could have been much more dramatic. The, the, re, the very reason Burt signed by City is downplayed in that. But Frank Swift, uh, well, Frank Swift had retired. City's replacement was ill. He eventually died of TB. And um, all the other replacements were rubbish, basically, because we're sort of going then to reserve youth, you know, and going down the, the, the numbers. Frank Swift was persuaded to come out of retirement. And Franksworth said, six games. I'm playing six games and you better have a goalkeeper. And City kept on going on saying, no play from what, six games. Um, And so for that reason, City had to get a goalkeeper. And I think that more than anything else is the reason they signed this, you know, former member of the Hitler Youth, this uh, guy been classified as the second highest level of that, saying, you know, this is why they took that gamble. And I think that would have made a fantastic, dramatic element to the film, um, because you can imagine the scenes in the, in the boardroom at City, you know, the, the chairman, the manager's arguing about, and maybe even Frank Swift in there, saying, well, I'm not playing, you know? And unfortunately all of that is just, let's just sign his goalkeeper. And I think they missed a real trick there. Um, Jock Thompson obviously wasn't the manager when City won the cup. They need continuity. Um, Still got to say it was a great film. It is a great but film. But I can understand no, you a, as a historian
0: oh. letting that bug you. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's
1: a fantastic film and I think it's absolutely spot on and I'm proud to be involved in it. And, you know, I've got my name on the credits and, and I did quite a bit around the PR for the film and I absolutely love it. But 20,000 people did not demonstrate outside Main Road. People did send back the season tickets. There were some letters in the Evening News and the Evening Chronicle. Um, There were were people threatening to boycott, but our crowds increased. Now, that might have been people coming to give him some abuse, but, you know, there's a bit of artistic licence there. With Bert, I interviewed Bert quite a lot over the years, and Bert, in the 1970s, talked about people sending back the season tickets and and writing. And there were sacked full of letters. By the 80s, he was talking about 5,000 people demonstrating... By the 90s, it was 10,000, and by the last time I, I spoke with me, it was 30,000 people marching <laughs> from Albert Square with torches to the stadium and throwing bricks, and obviously the people who interviewed Bert to produce the film heard that version, um, so they were a bit shocked when I told them the truth. <laughs> well, but, but, you know, the, the story, it, it really is an incredible story, and it's one that everybody should go and see, because the, the overall story is absolutely spot on, and it's worth seeing, and for us... This is, well, this shows Manchester City fans to be forgiving, to, you know, if you think about it, back then, we had a fairly large Jewish support and we brought in the guy who was perceived as the biggest enemy. Now, we still have a fairly large Jewish support and we're owned by people from a, a Muslim state. Um, So, you know, we've, we're more about concili- reconciliation and working together than about bigotry and rivalry.
0: Yeah, and, and you should be very proud, by the way, of, of your involvement in that film and so many other things. I mean, you've, you've brought out, as I say, all the definitive books, it feels to me, about City, um, and I'm very proud to own pretty much all those books, and, and they're always my go-to. And when I read something in one of them books, I know it's right, I know it's a fact, as I feel about when you're speaking and you continue to do stuff. Um, before I ask you about what you're doing now, which of all those books are you most proud of? Is it the Joe Mercer book, or is it mm. one of the factual books? Well, no, Joe Mercer's factual. That's <laughs> said it wrong then, didn't it? <laughs> I made it, it all up. <laughs> um,
1: Joe Mercer is the one that meant the most to me. I was fortunate enough to, to meet Joe a few times, and the first time, <laughs> The first book I did was a a, a crap book called Pharaoh's Main Road. And I say it was crap because all sorts of things went wrong, but anyway, um that was thirty-eight, thirty year, yeah, thirty years ago. Um
0: You know that old.
1: Yeah. Well was I was, <laughs> was twenty one when it came out and it came out a year late because the guy I was writing it with unfortunately um passed away. And I it should have come out in nineteen eighty eight and I thought that's it, you know, I was just supposed to be supplying some photographs and some Information about it, and Keith unsadly well, died. and um, I thought, That's it, forget it. I'm never going to write a book. I mean, my mum had already said to me, You write a book. Um, and then Keith's wife phoned me up um, and said, Keith would have loved you to finish the book. And so I did. Um, and she said, And he said that you should contact Joe Mercer because Joe did agree to write the forward. So I had Joe's um, address and phone number, and I wrote a letter, and then I got a phone call off Northern Mercer Joe's wife, and she went, come up and see us, um, and we lived up on on the Wirral in High Lake at the time, and so I asked if I could take my dad, because my dad obviously my dad I I was born in October sixty seven, the day before Francis Lee signed, um, and. But my dad was a passionate, probably more of a passionate city than I am in some ways. Um, certainly he would never wear red. Um, and we ended up, I, I, me and my dad were going up there on this Sunday and Noah said, come at one o'clock. And on the morning of our trip up there, my dad's car broke down and he ended up borrowing a white transit van from work. It was the only car we could, vehicle we could get hold of. So we're driving up to Oil Lake and just as we're getting close to where the Mercer's live, um, my dad goes, we can't really not put Joe Mercer's house in the white transit van. It's Joe Mercer. We can't. We just can't do that. And, oh, no, we can't. and we're about an hour early. So anyway, we, sort of, we saw where the house was. We, we knew where it was. And so we stopped on the, the next road, and we could see where the house was, but we just parked here. We sat there for 55 minutes, and when it got to five to, to one, we got out, we walked up. All the time, my dad saying to me, you can't ask him this, you can't ask him that, it's Joe Mercer, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, my all over the place. Anyway, go, knock on the door, Joe Mercer opens the door, big beaming smile, come in. And then his wife, Nora, pops head right round the corner and had a fairly strong scout accent says to us, you've been hiding in that white transit van for the last hour, haven't you? <laughs> and it sort of set everything, it, it was fantastic. And we went up to Joe's um, study and he brought out the 1950 FA Cup final ball. He was Arsenal captain when they beat Liverpool in the final. We brought that out, brought out lots of stuff. Nora brought me a beer in a tankard and I just got to drink from his tankard I saw Aston Villa, League Cup winners, 1960, 61, and it was the tankard that Joe got for that. And it was, and anyway, so I did that book, um, and then I got to do uh, the Pride of Manchester with a, a United fan, uh, which was fine. We started writing it, and then City beat United 5-1, and then tensions and so on, but we eventually finished that in 1991. And all that time I wanted to write about John Mercer, and I was gonna write the Mercer-Allison years, and then he died in August 1990. And as soon as he died, first of all, I regretted the fact that I hadn't written the book. And secondly, I was thinking, if I do write a book, it's got to be his, his full life. And so I asked Nora, not immediately, obviously, but a bit later, like I asked Nora. And then she went, only do it if you really want to do it. And I went, but it's John Mercer. And she went, yeah, but... Don't just do it because, it because you think it'll please me or whatever, just do it. And then right in that book I interviewed some incredible people, George Graham, Tom Finney, which Tom, interviewing Tom Finney was the, the greatest interview I've ever... No, I don't mean greatest interview. I mean best experience when I've interviewed somebody because I was interviewing him at Preston North End just before a, a fourth division match between Preston and uh, Scunthorpe. I think. Um, it meant nothing to me. We were sat in one of these boxes that overlooked the pitch and I'm interviewing Tom, I've got my old concept recorder, I'm interviewing Tom and asking some questions about Joe Mercer, and he's talking about Joe, and then the players come out just before the game was due to start, and we were sort of doing a bit of a warm-up, and then obviously the game was going to start, and the moment these players came out, his attention was straight on the pitch, and he was telling me about every single player, not just for Preston, but for Scunthorpe as well, he was describing how they played, he was saying you've got to watch out for, I can't remember, but you know, that number four there, and all this sort of stuff, And I just left my cassette recorder running and listened. Eventually, it stopped halfway through the first half, but I sat there just getting this commentary off off Tom Finney for this magical time. Nothing I could use in the book, but just a fantastic experience. So yeah, the Joe Mercer book, to keep it brief, the Joe Mercer (laughs) book is the book that mattered most and the book that made me think I really want to write. The Pride of Manchester was important. The first book was important, but the Joe Mercer book was the one that I wanted to do. And after that, um, I suppose one I'm most proud of, more than anything else, would be Fail to Main Road, which didn't really sell many, um, people weren't that bothered about it at the time, uh, but it's all the story of Main Road and that was the one where I got most of my, I'm a great believer in oral history, interviewing people and get, capturing their stories, and Fail to Main Road was one where I did most of that, and I, I've got loads of great stories um, and I wish we'd published well, we, we published about two and a half thousand copies. It eventually sold out, but it took took a bit of time that one. Um, I wish it had been about ten thousand copies because it's the sort of book I think every City fan really should have. Farewell to Main Road, just to learn about the experiences of being a fan. I approached that as a fan. Writing what I thought was the life of City, and um, I hope it came across. But it meant more to me than you know. I can I can talk about. Colin Bell scoring goals or, or um, Bert Trammer breaking his neck or whatever, but to talk about the experience of attending a football match at Main Road and what it meant walking through the sort of Platt Lane Tunnel and suddenly seeing the green and the kit packs and everything else. That's, that's different to me and that's the folklore book that I've recently done, I wanted to capture a lot of that. I wanted to get across to people the DNA of the club, what Manchester City means. At the moment we're being told what Manchester City is and, and most of what we're being told is, is not nice. Well, the truth is that Manchester City is a fantastic club. That we are the people who made that club. We're the people who have to own that club. We're the guardians of the colours, the history, the name, the the players. We it's us. Owners come and go, but we we are we are constant. As a City fan, a lifelong
0: City fan who's who's watched your career develop and admires you greatly, uh, one thing that that staggers me. I know you do some stuff for the match day programmes, etc and I know that you are a revered historian, you are Dr Gary James after all, I'm just staggered that you don't do more of this, and aren't working more for the club spreading the word really, because listening to you with the passion and the and the uh, the emotion that you speak from is just riveting and i hope that people who have not come across your books now go and seek them out if they can and read them and you have plans now and i know you're very inclusive and you're very much a a, a supporter of everything to do with manchester city you're working on another project now or trying to anyway tell us about that
1: yeah for the last few years i've been interviewing the women and some of the men involved, but, but mostly the women who played for Manchester City, ladies team and now women's team. Um, so I think that includes people you know, like um, what, Izzy Christensen, Jill Scott, Karen Barsley, um, Steph Horton and, and so on. Um, as well uh, But as well as them it includes people like um, Leslie Wright who played in the early days. and uh, Debbie Derbyshire. Debbie Derbyshire. And we both know. Rowena Foxwell who sadly passed away not so long ago. And, and all of those others um people don't understand the manchester city ladies as well started in november 88 that was the first game i mean obviously it started in the summer before that but well, first game was november '88, and i was there i was at boundary park watching it and um that history of women playing football is is, is modern it's it's recent but has been lost and so I'm capturing the stories of these women who, who played, and there's some great stories coming out of it. Um, you know, there's one, she was a, she's a United fan, and it was her turn to wash the kit. She lived near Old Trafford. Um, she, didn't, she didn't go to United every United game, but she had to wash the kit for the game on a Sunday. And what she didn't realise was United were playing at home that day, and her mum went absolutely mad because there was 12 City shirts hanging up on the, the washing line right next to Old Trafford on a match day. Um, so there's stories like that. Um, but, you know, I, I decided I wanted to do this project. I wanted to capture these stories because we're constantly being told Manchester City women is a new club. Um, you know, there were people writing, and I best not say real, they are, but there were people writing the City... It's not a historic women's club. Um, Sunderland's more historic. It's not, um, and and all these other teams more historic. No, Manchester City Women is thirty almost thirty one years old. Um, it achieved promotions and relegations. It, it's competed in a league structure ever since nineteen eighty nine. Its first season was friendlies, but ever since nineteen eighty nine, it's been a league structure. It competed in the Women's FA Cup in its first possible year, um, and it's typical of many women's teams. It relied on. Women, paying the subs, putting up the nets, finding change rooms, getting changed in cars, getting changed in pubs, getting, you know, all those sort of things that most Sunday footballers will know about. It's the same sort of thing. Um, and it kept growing. And there's, at different times, there were people who contributed more and then they had to move on for whatever reason, but it grew. So I've been doing this project, capturing these stories. And in September, the book of this, hopefully, will be published. Now, I'm doing something slightly different. Normally with my books I try to get what I call a subscriber edition where people can pay for it up and they get the name of the book and then it's published. Because of the funding for this, um, I can't get a publisher to, to back it basically. So this is being, well, self-published. It will be to the same standards as all my other books, absolutely no, nothing less. It will be similar in size to the folklore book that I've just brought out, but it needs support. And so I've set up one of these Kickstarter um, pledge systems where basically you can pledge someone money, and you get a copy of the book. Now, the book will cost £15. Pounds. So if you pledge by the 7th of June and we reach the target, which is around about 250 subscribers, basically, but if we get the target, the book will go ahead. But for £15, pounds, you'll get the name, your name in the book, you'll get a limited edition copy signed by me, numbered and, and so on, um and it's you'll guarantee a copy for 25 pounds you can get that plus some other stuff and tickets for the launch two tickets for the launch um obviously if we don't reach the total by the 7th of june it doesn't happen so it's a bit of a gamble for me um but in the current climate when publishing is struggling um I, this is the only way, really. So, if anyone wants to support... I mean, I've, had, I've, I've been pl- proud, really, that some people have just pledged a pound. They don't want anything. They've just pledged a pound. Um, but, for me, I pledge 15 quid, get the book. You know, you're going to enjoy it because it will be written to the same standards as the ever. And if you're a City fan who wants to read about City but perhaps doesn't care about the women's team, you'll still enjoy it because it will include stuff that you think... That resonates because some of the players were City fans, some of them were watching City, well for example promotion game Bradford uh, 1989, the women played one of their first games that morning against Bradford City women and then rushed to the match to watch it and tell their stories of that. Um, some One of them got injured, one of them um, arrived at the ground playing the boys in blue and never gave in and all this sort of stuff. But it, it was it was significant and it was important. Um, so yeah, so Colin Endry was the first president of the club. Um, there's stories about um, some of the annual awards evenings, which people like Paul Lake attended and, and, and others. So yeah, get the book if you can if you're not how interested. do
0: people subscribe then how do
1: they so probably best if you if you, I'll put links on my Facebook which is facebook.com stroke Gary uh, James 4 or my Twitter which is at Gary James Writer um, but if you go on if you if you don't do that if you go if you do a search on Kickstarter and Manchester City Women you should find it um, but yeah I'll put li- links up and like I say £15 gets you the book gets your name in it a limited edition copy £25 gets you two tickets for the launch as well as the book and some other stuff. 50 quid, he comes around and makes tea for you, so (laughs) there you go. Yeah, (laughs) I was was thinking about doing something like that, you know, an an audience with or something. But the the launch, I'm going to, with the launch, I can't say where it's going to be yet because it all depends. But what I'm hoping to do at the launch is something similar to what I did at that 125 um, talk. At the dance house. It might not this may not be at a dance house, it may be somewhere else. But the idea is to do something about the women's team that is at the same sort of level um and include quite a lot of the former players and, and so on. And there's some really powerful stories. I mean there's one I don't want to give too much away but there's one of the players who wanted um, to be part of Manchester and she saw a small feature in the newspaper she She went to the call box, she put her two P's in, and a 10 P, and she phoned this number, and her entire life changed as a result of Manchester City ladies team, and seeing this small article, and obviously I'm gonna tell the full story in the book, but it it really is important, and if you're somebody who believes in um, female rights, equality, everything else that goes with that, then it's, it's also worth getting, whether you're a City fan or not. Uh, it will be the most comprehensive, history of a women's team that's ever been written and it will include the results of every single competitive game the team's played and lineups from around about 2003 I'm still missing a few I'm still searching Um, but yeah it's worth Good luck with it. I know
0: you've also got um, a rerun of The Boys in Blue talk at the Dance House Theatre in June, which uh, i already got me tickets for, even though I've seen it, so that shows you yeah, I'm committed to the Gary James' um, the, storytelling. The boys
1: in, <laughs> what I love about The Boys in Blue is it's a series of films, and I, I waffle on for a bit in between, but um, it's a, a series of films... It's not about seeing the greatest goals that have ever been. You know, we got a complaint one year saying, where was the um, European Cup Winners' Cup final goals? Well, it, you can see those on YouTube. It's not about that. It's about what goes on around that. So we do have colour film of City players with the European Cup Winners' Cup, which is, you can't get anywhere. You and the
0: homecoming parade. And, and the homecoming, like, yeah.
1: you know, film of City fans singing You'll Never Walk Alone more passionately than Liverpool fans do, you know. Um, we've got the last day of the kippag's filmed from the Kipax, with all the emotion and, and stuff that goes with that. And um, I know in your previous podcast you, you've talked about chants and what gets included and excluded and so on. We did have to edit that because there was quite an abusive chant about a famous United player who, when the first time we showed her Boys in Blue, was still actually playing, so I think you can probably work out who it is. Um, and so we had to edit that a bit out. Um, which we did, but it's you know, it, just to see the Kipax in our explorer, we've got it's got colour film of Bert Traumann playing, kicking the ball, um, and we've got film from 1905 of Hyde Road, the first game at Main Road in 1923, the last game at Main Road. But it's not the games, it's the scenery around it, and I think that's what makes it special. For this version, um, with that, we're going to add some film from. Um, away days in the 1980s we've managed to get some footage of a game at Wimbledon and a game at Fulham again it's for tendencies it's, it's what the fans see so it shows people like Helen Turner arriving and wishing Alex Williams good luck and all this sort of stuff and it's, it's just great for me
0: maybe my vlogs will make it in about 30 years from now looking back at the the fans who went to the games in the Pep Guardiola era um, but, but anyway but that's,
1: that is exactly the sort of stuff we want I mean I, I wish that there was an equivalent of Ian Cheeseman back in 1922, you know, to capture that sort of stuff. Um, that's a frightening thought. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But, no, but, but that's the sort of thing, you know, people filmed the, the Kipax on its last day. The club didn't, the BBC didn't, ITV didn't, because they were filming the game. But fans filmed fans, and that's what's important to me, is what we see as fans. So, you know, I, I told this uh, a couple of stories about being a fan at games in the eighties and, you know, being on Helen Turner's coach and she's demanding we do a collection for the drive and she's telling you off if you have a beer and all this sort of stuff. That was our experience. Yeah. You know, that, that was it. You you selling the sandwiches on the match specials for trains and all that. So that was it. You know, people it's a lost world now. Um and when we have film of it, it's so important. And so All those films of the homecoming parades in 2011, 12, you know, and and so on, they're the sorts of things that are so important because you'll have the official BBC, ITV, Sky, whatever film, but then you'll have what really happens, you'll have the fans.
0: On the last day at Main Road I was privileged to introduce the Parade of Legends and I thought that had disappeared and then somebody sent me a little bit of film of that, and that means so much to me. But that's the type of thing you're talking about, really, isn't it? Away from the football, capturing those moments. Yeah, well, the
1: last uh, day of the kickbacks. the last day of the Kip which was um, 25 years ago, um, I was on the pitch with Vince Miller because I'd volunteered. It was the first time I ever did anything official with City because there's loads of stories. But uh, anyway, um, Francis Lee uh, was tried to get something sorted for last day and I volunteered. there was others Um, and I'm on the pitch and they decided that they wanted the Kipaks to chant um, traditional sort of songs and so Vince Miller who was the compere in his white suit said Gary you'll have to come on the pitch with me because you know them so I end up going on the pitch with him in my Kipaks last time t-shirt and he said right right what's this Joe Mercer came and so I'm stood on the pitch singing it to him so that he can then sing it to the Kipaks and get everyone on the kickbacks singing. And it was just awful because obviously the Kipaks are never gonna sing what Vince Miller tells them to sing. He mistranslates what I'm singing. So he starts singing it in a different way. Well, it was just a disaster. But before that, um, the week before that, we were in the boardroom at Main Road. And it was, it was the first time I'd ever been in the boardroom at Main Road. And there was, I better not say who we are, but some senior officials, directors in this boardroom. And one of the guys who had volunteered with me had said, and we want balloons coming down from the Kipax area of the balloons, right? And straight away, one of the um, officials said, that's Chelsea's colours, we can't have that, that's Chelsea's colours, you don't know what you're talking about, that's dark blue. So the guy picked it up, blew it up, and um, amazingly, it became city blue. <laughs> and this director said, you were lucky there, <laughs> <laughs> but that was the city of nineteen ninety four, wasn't it? You know, so yeah, it was a, a strange week that was. Gary, know. it's been an absolute joy. We need to
0: get you back again, but for now, thank you very much for for a fascinating chat, which um, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will will enjoy. Good luck with the book. Cheers. Uh, thanks very much to Hot Click Marketing who support the the podcast that we're doing, and. Um, You know, there's nothing else I can say but thank you. Cheers, Gary. Thanks,
1: and thanks for having me. You know, I I don't get asked that often these days, so thanks. Oh, you'll be
0: asked by me again.
1: (laughs) Cheers.